All right, well, good morning. Good. I hope everyone's having a good day. Nope. All right, good. We will make it better. Okay. Uh, well, my name is Josh. Uh, I am the kids pastor uh, here. Uh, that means I am not Joshua Reese, who is the student pastor. Uh, so I am overseeing uh, birth through like fourth grade. Uh, so if you see people wearing like Redemption Kids shirts, you know, blue shirts right here. Uh, out there, those are my people. Black shirts. We got some green ones. You know, we got them all. So anyway, that's who I am. Uh, so I'm super thankful to be here with you this morning. We are in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Samuel, and we are only three weeks into our series of We Want a King. And Seth started us off in chapter 8, so if you didn't read chapters 1 through 7, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, Hopefully my sermon today will highlight a little bit of that, and you'll be like, yeah, actually that sounds kind of cool. I want to go read it. Uh, But first is our First week we were in chapter 8, and the nation of Israel is going through a little bit of a tough time. And so uh, they reject God, his words, not mine, right? And they ask for a king like the nations. And so they ask for a king like the nations. And then Arnold last week in chapters 9 and 10 talked to us about who God chose. God's anointed. It's Saul. It's this guy who's beautiful and tall, like, you know, not me. So this is like, Not that. Uh, So he's way up here, uh, and he's the guy that God has chosen. That's him. And so this week, we are kind of at like this big point of Saul's first battle, all right? And so it kind of goes like this. Uh, I'm a big sports fan. I probably like sports too much. Uh, You know, some of you may not like sports enough, okay? Uh, But I'm on the other end. I like it too much. And uh, uh, all of my teams in Arizona usually get good draft picks because— we stink. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, so D-backs got draft coming up, uh, and they are going to be picking second, uh, which means they were very bad. You know, like that. So they're going to be picking this guy. And my wife will tell you, I'll like know everything about this guy the moment he gets drafted. And I'll be like, this is the guy. He's taking us to the top. You know, like you might have felt that way about the Suns first round pick or the Cardinals first round pick a couple years back. You know, like this is our guy. He's going to take us to the top. The reality is, is they're just kids getting drafted. And to put the hopes and dreams of like a whole, you know, professional franchise on like an 18-year-old might not be a great idea, but we do it anyway. And I'm like, this is my guy. But they do need an iconic moment, right? Like when they make it to the big leagues in baseball, like I need you to show me that you got it. You know, like can you actually do the job? Can you hit the home run? Can you steal the base? Can you pitch a shutout? That's kind of like where Saul's at right now. If you look in your Bibles in chapter 10, just look at the way chapter 10 ends. Chapter 10 ends, Saul has been privately anointed in chapter 9, and, or beginning of chapter 10. He gets privately anointed by Samuel. He gets publicly chosen to be king in front of all Israel. And the way chapter 10 ends is it ends this way. There's a bunch of people who are like, that's our guy. Long live the king. And then there's this other group that are like, Uh, can he actually save us? I feel like he can't get the job done. Right? And that's where it ends. The question, can Saul save? And that's where we are today. And so our big picture question for us here in this morning, right? In kids ministry, we have big picture question. If you ever come and teach and work in kids ministry, we have our big picture question. Here it is. Who can save? You know the answer. But I hope after this morning... Uh, we'll have wrestled with this question a little bit in real time. Because the reality is, is this question matters a ton 
how we answer it. And not just how we answer it correctly, but how we believe it and how it leads us to action. So let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the entirety of the scriptures, which testify to your great power to save and that you are a God who is gracious and good and holy and mighty. And so I pray this morning that we would be led even greater uh, to see you uh, and to trust you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so today, as we look at chapter 11, I want to look at it through kind of like the lens of three different people that are kind of all surrounding this question of who can save. And so the first group that we're going to look at is the the people of Jabesh Gilead. It's this group who is basically ignorant of God's ability to save. All right, so look at me with verse 1. So here's what happens. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. So that's a city. He's coming in from the east, and he's going to take out this city in Israel. And it says, And all the men of Jabesh Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. All right? And then Nahash says, But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition, uh, I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. So here's a little bit that you kind of got to think about. So you have this people that are in a city, and the city's about to get attacked. And rather, right, that would have been maybe a little bit more cohesive with their history, rather than cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, there is this real impending doom. There's this threat of attack. Please help us. What do they do? They're like, oh, hi. Welcome to the neighborhood. Yes, I think... uh, you know, you look bigger and stronger than us. We'll just make a treaty with you. Does that sound okay? And then Nahash is like, oh, that sounds great. I don't have to go to battle. You guys are just going to lay down, not fight. This is great. Actually, let me just let you know, I'm still going to gouge out your right eye. And they're like, well, you drive a hard bargain. We kind of, you know, like, well, um, you know, would you mind giving us a week? Let's see if we can't find anybody who could save us. You know, like, maybe there's someone out there. It's literally crazy to me, right? Like, when you're like, oh, yeah. (laughs) They just seem so comfortable with laying down and not crying out, not asking for help. And they literally are just like, who can save? I don't know. Maybe no one. But, you know, we might send some people out there to see if they can find somebody. (laughs) It's like, this is the picture of how spiritually shallow Israel is at this moment. That they have forgotten quite a long history of a God who cry, hears the cries of his people and then answers. Maybe not necessarily in a way that they were used to or had figured out, but he still answered. He had delivered them. And these people are sitting there and they're like, you know, we'll just be your slaves. That's fine. You know, and if somebody doesn't answer us in seven days, just take our right eye. No big deal. It's fascinating to me to think that they could be at this point because what they are is they are literally not living in reality. The reality is, is that there is a God who stands ready to save them because he has made a promise with them. They are his people and they literally won't even access that. They're just like, nah, it might not matter. I think my life's been pretty good without God. And that's kind of like where they are. You know, today as you sit here, I'm going to say like salvation or save or that God saves. I'm going to say it a bunch. And usually are like, kind of like, how do you, you know, kind of like uh, hear 
uh, salvation, like you're, you're, how you filter it. Most often we filter salvation, you hear me that? We think like in terms of he's, God's saving me from my sin. And that's great. I need that. I need God to save me from my sin. I need to be saved from the shame and guilt that comes from my sin. I need to be set free from all of that. And I need to be saved. But really in the Old Testament here, as he's talking about, you know, God working salvation in Israel this day, it is actually like God relieving distress, right? Moving these people who have a real threat, a real enemy, a real person that's going to have something happen to them. They are now being, right, their circumstance is bad. And God is going to save them and relieve the distress. That, that salvation is really about moving from like distress to safety. And we get that. Like we, we understand that language. We say that all the time. You know, if somebody in the office brings me a coffee at two o'clock, I'm like, whew, you saved me. I'm able to get this work done now. You know what I mean? Like if somebody, you know, my car uh, stopped working on the road uh, a, a while ago, it was great. This guy literally pulls over and tries to help me. I'm like, man, you're saving my life. Thanks. He didn't fix nothing. He goes, when's the last time you put gas in this thing? I'm like, brother, I don't even know. And so, true statement, ran out of gas. You know, so it's like, but I'm like, thanks for saving me. You know, like there's this, we use salvation language. We're in a bit of trouble, a little hot water, and we want to be moved to like a little bit of safety and comfortability. We get that. But these people don't even cry out. Literally, as you keep reading, right? Like, who are the people that are crying? Not that city. It's the city that uh, Saul's in, right? Like, the people of Gibeah hear about their brothers and sisters who may be going through a hard time, and they hear that, and they're like, oh, they're weeping. Like, disgrace is about to be brought on Israel. Now they're crying for them. Those people don't even get told as crying. And it's like, wow, uh, I don't know. I don't want to be those people. If I'm being honest, but if we're being honest and you want to see yourself in the story, we're probably those people. But there is this small picture of what to do with your distress and with your kind of bad circumstances and with, you know, outside forces oppressing you, right? There is this picture in the book of 1 Samuel of this spiritually shallow society, but then there's this little light of hope that comes in. And her name is Hannah, and she starts the book. She's Samuel's mom, and she's married to this guy who has two wives, her and another lady. And the one lady can have kids, and, the other, and Hannah cannot. Right? And so in, instead of just being like, oh, that's a bummer, you can't have kids. Like, she lets her know a lot that you can't have kids. Look at all the kids I'm having. And there's this, like, actual, like, you know, outside force outside of Hannah where she's, like, being oppressed. And she's in distress. And this is what Hannah does in that moment where a real enemy is bringing her real threat and real harm. And it says this in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10. It says, And Hannah was deeply distressed, and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. This is the picture of what we should do when it comes to distress and threat and problem. We take it to the one who can actually do something about it. My wife and I um, have been uh, uh, fostering her cousin's son for like 10 months. And uh, it, it kind of 
came up on us on a surprise, and we've been having a, a ton of fun. You know, we got three kids under five living in the Yasuda household, so that's uh, fun uh, most of the time, uh, 50-50. So, you know, it's like, it's not bad, but we got a lot of young little kids, but we, we, we didn't necessarily sign up to get involved in the foster care situation that's happening, but, but we, we did feel like the Lord led us to it. Uh, however, once you get in the mix, you start to know if you've been in foster care or adoption that, like, there's a lot of broken things happening in this whole system. Like, it's not perfectly, you know, all okay. There's a lot of brokenness. And I was reading this book uh, that, you know, a bunch of folks here on staff had recommended. Uh, it's called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And I'm holding Cameron uh, in the rocking chair in his room, and I'm feeding him a bottle, and I'm reading on my phone. And I get to this quote, and this is what it says. Lamenting shows you are engaged with God in a vibrant, living faith. We live in a deeply broken world. If the pieces of our world aren't breaking your heart, and you aren't in God's face about them, then you're becoming quietly cynical. You've thrown in the towel. I highlighted it on my Kindle app, hit copy, I sent it to my wife, and I said, that's me. I've thrown in the towel. Our prayer lives can easily describe the kind of like state of our heart. Do I get in God's face about it? Like, or am I more like the, the people of Jabesh Gilead? And I'm like, Meh, I guess this is it. Nothing better can happen. But when I look at Hannah, when I look at her song in chapter 2, she's describing a God who is powerful to save, who raises the dead to life, who gives food to the hungry, who actually works salvation real time in the midst of people's lives. Oftentimes, we become quietly cynical. What are you becoming quietly cynical about in your life? Where do you need to repent of unbelief in God's power? The reality is, is all of us are super comfortable sitting in church saying, yes, Jesus saved me from my sins. But when it comes to like our situations, we're like, man, we can handle this. You know, work the money, work the finances, work the whatever else. But the question is, is who can really save? If you're part of the people of Jabesh Gilead, you're like, meh, I don't know if it's possible. But maybe. Here's the amazing thing about this passage, that even though these people don't cry out to God, even though they don't ask for salvation from the Lord, what does the Lord do? The Lord still saves them. We still see his grace and his mercy giving salvation to people who don't deserve it and to people who haven't even asked for it. And so maybe you find yourself as if you don't deserve it and you haven't even asked. That's okay. Our God is a God who saves those people. The second people or person, not people, uh, he is one man, uh, is he is Saul and he is the king of Israel. But as I said before, he, he's kind of got to show if he fits the job description, right? So when Saul, Samuel anointed him in chapter 10, this is what Samuel said to him as he's pouring oil on his head. He says, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. So this is like the job description of the king. What are you going to do? You're going to reign and you're going to save. And so now he's been chosen and he's got to show that he could do it. But the reality is, is he can't do it on his own. He is empowered by God to save God's people. 
right? So take a look at verse 5 and 6 with me in our, our text today. It says, Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, what, What's wrong with the people? Why, why are they weeping? And it says, So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Right? So there is weeping happening. There is uh, some grief happening. And the Lord comes upon Saul, and now he's kindled to anger. And that's going to drive this action that in his anger, he's going to call the people together and he's going to get this army. I really want to kind of walk through the text a little bit, but I, I want to give Saul his credit. Because if you know a, a little bit of the story, or I would encourage you as we, as a church, read through First and Second Samuel, you could read it too you're going to find that this is kind of like Saul's best moment. So, you know, if this was the best moment of my life, I'd want somebody to take a little bit of time and just give me some credit. You know what I mean? Like, no, I'm just kidding. He's not going to get any credit. All right, so anyway, but here's the deal. It's like, this is his best moment. Why is it his best moment might be a helpful question in answering the question, who can save? So, so we see the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and, and, and notice he now is becoming the king that God wants him to be. Right? If the job description is you're going to reign over the people of the Lord and you're going to save God's people from their enemies, notice how Saul is not quite the main authority. Right? What's Saul doing? He's reigning over God's people. So there's still this understanding that he is empowered by God to care for God's people and to save God's people. He's a servant. Right? Like this is kind of the height of the Israel's king is that they are called to serve under the authority of the Lord. There's a king in Israel. Whether they want him or not, there is one. You don't get to make God king. He is king. And then notice what happens. It says he took a yoke of oxen. So interesting though, like he's still farming. Like let's just get that in our minds for good contextual, kind of like good reading. You know, if you're reading all this, this is good literature. Like, just because he was made king didn't mean, like, it came with a palace, you know, and a Benz, and, like, a chariot awaits him. Like, the finest meats and cheeses all on his table. Like, that doesn't seem—he's working. And then he's like, what? And the Spirit of the Lord rushes on him, and he says, He took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Uh, this is a good point to just talk about how do you read biblical narrative. Um, it's a story about real people in real time, real history, and the Lord working in the midst of that. It's not necessarily always prescriptive. So this would be a good example for that. Uh, if you're going to call a meeting this week at work, and you want to get everybody together focused up, moving as one man, you know, like really get on the ball on whatever task you're trying to accomplish. Don't go chopping up animals and sending them to everybody's office, you know, like rally up. Otherwise, that's what's happening, you know. Uh, no, don't do that. <laughs> so that's a, more of a like, hey, this is just describing a situation, but really what are we to learn? The, learn? the learning element is like, what is God doing here? Oh, so the fear of the Lord fell on people, and they gathered together all these different tribes. They gathered together, and now they're going to fight as one army to accomplish one purpose of saving God's people. And I love the confidence, because last time we saw Saul, what's Saul doing? He's hiding in baggage, doesn't really want to be made king. You know, kind of an interesting situation there. Then notice the way that they talk to the messengers. 
In verse 9, it says, all right, we're going to tell you messengers, like everyone's saying, speaking. And it says, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. We get that. That's probably, you know, for us, you came into church already there. So they were routed before 10 a.m., you know, kind of deal. Uh, So by the time the sun is hot, we will give ourselves, or excuse me, uh, you shall have salvation. So from a guy who goes hiding in baggage— Kind of like, why are you talking to me this way? Spirit of the Lord rushes on him to accomplish the purposes of God so that he might save God's people. Now he's like confident of victory because he understands that he, or he's experiencing that he is under the Lord's power, ready to fulfill the task given to him that he is going to actually save the Lord's people. It's like the order is correct, right? So there's this confidence that he's following the Lord and the Lord is going to work through him. It's when Saul kind of goes out of that order, as we'll read, and I'm not preaching those, so let's give him his due. He's doing it good here. Uh, You know, it's when that order gets messed up, when he recognizes that maybe he might be the one who's in charge, and he can call the shots, and God's not. But even at the end of this, notice where we go, right? They win, they scatter everybody, and notice what happens. Verse 12, this is my favorite part of the whole thing. It says, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put him to death. You know what I mean? It's like talking to all the Patriots fans, you know, because they knew when they drafted Tom Brady in the sixth round that this guy is going to be the greatest quarterback of all time. Like, bring anybody else who doesn't believe Tom Brady's the greatest. Yeah, okay, we get it. He's the greatest. Get out of here. He could retire any point, please, you know? But it's like that kind of same idea. Look, our guy. The guy we put our trust in, the guy who we said long live the king, the guy who now has not only been, you know, anointed, not only been proclaimed, but now he's shown that he's got it. This guy. Bring in anybody who doesn't want to follow that guy, let's kill him. And if he were acting like a king like the nations, he would actually do it. You see in them like, hey, they're trained, they're ready, like this is what you do. Anybody who's not behind you, wipe them out. But what does Saul do? His words are this, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. You know, it's an interesting way this like, chapter works out. It's kind of like um, my daughter and I, uh, like on Luke's kind of recommendation, uh, I, I, I mean, I've read the Chronicles of Narnia before, but I was always wondering, like, when is it old? You know, like, when, are, when, when is my daughter old enough to read them? And, or not read them. She can't read it. She's four and a half. Uh, but, sorry. Uh, but me to read to her. And so, like, we started, and it's been fun, and we're reading it, you know, every now and then, and and we're kind of catching up on the story. But as I studied this, and I kind of looked, not just at this, but you're thinking about, you know, Aslan and all these things, you're like, this is kind of the same. Like, Lucy and Peter and Susan and Edmund, sure, they get to be called kings and queens of Narnia. But, like, we all know as you're reading all the stories, they're not the king. They're not the one calling all the shots. They're not the one who is in charge. They're not the one with all the power. It's kind of like that. Saul has to recognize this is there, and he does that in this moment. This is why it's his high point moment. Is it the moment where he could say, yes, I did it. Let's take these people out. He says, no, no one's going to die today. God's the one who did this, right? Because he understands his place. And he not only says it right, he reflects it. 
He reflects the Lord. He not only is under the power of the Lord, but he's reflecting the Lord to his people in a way that they could follow. Right? In Proverbs 19.11, it says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Right? Like Saul's acting with like kingly glory. He's overlooking an offense. But even more so, he's looking like the Lord. Jesus says this in Luke 6, 36. He says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Right? Like Saul is acting kingly. He's reflecting the Lord to his people. This is his high moment. That the moment when he could answer the question, who can save? He could have said, this guy, me. And what does he do? He says, don't look at me. He says, look at the Lord. And they go and they continue to rejoice before the Lord. And he's made king before the Lord. And they make sacrifices before the Lord. Are you seeing that? Right? Like, it's all happening before the Lord. The Lord is the one who has worked salvation. And the third person we're looking at here is God. It kind of ends there, right? Like, the, the salvation has and always will belong to the Lord. As it ends, Samuel says this. It says, then Samuel, after Saul shows mercy and he, he kind of uh, acts kingly in the best way, he then says, uh, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The trajectory of this chapter is awesome. Right? It begins with there's a real threat. There's real people who are in distress. And even though in their distress they don't ask for salvation, they send people out and even other people are weeping for them. And so there's these people weeping and there's people in distress. And God works this salvation. And how does the chapter end? It, it ends with rejoicing and victory. It's a beautiful picture of when the Lord works salvation in our lives, it leads us to praise. Um, as I said, we have a couple kids, uh, and, and so we drive a lot, uh, and they're in the back, you know, so as good parents do, we're like talking to our kids in the back. We don't, we're making sure our eyes are on the street and stuff, of course, but you know, you're talking to your kids in the back, and uh, if I drive by Warner and Lindsay, if I, I drive by Warner and Lindsay, there's a golf course there, and when I point at the golf course, uh, it's called Western Skies Golf Club. Anybody know it? Yeah? Uh, so anyway, if I drive by that golf course, I don't point at it and go, hey, like there is, the, is a golf course. My kids don't care. But if I point at the golf course now as I drive by it, I point at the golf course and I say, that's where mom and dad got married. 13, over 13 years ago, at that golf course, we got married. Right? Like, we have a sushi place that we really like to go to. I mean, you can invite us. We'll go to any sushi place. It's fine. Um, but, you know, like, we have, like, our place that we like to go to. Why do we like to go there? We went there when it, like, first opened. We've been dating four months, and now we've been together for a long time, and we always go there. You know, like, there's lots of memories that happen there. Samuel invites, right, the people and says, let's go renew the kingdom. And where does he say to go? He says, let's go to Gilgal. You might say, I don't even know what that is. Me neither. I had to look at a map and an atlas. But in Joshua chapter 4, as the people come into the promised land, after they've been in the wilderness for 40 years, listen about Gilgal. 
In Joshua 4, verse 20, it says this, And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan. So, so to get into the promised land, the nation of Israel walked on dry ground through the Jordan River to get up to the promised land. And it says, And God had them take twelve stones out of the river. And so those 12 stones, it says, Joshua set up at Gilgal, and he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, as kids do, they like to ask questions, what do these stones mean? So they're like, hey, we're visiting the city. There's this tower of stones. What the heck are these stones? Why should I not knock them down? You know, like that's what my kids would say. Uh, Let me knock them down. Uh, No, you as a dad would then say, oh, those 12 stones, let me tell you a story. And this is what you would say. It says, then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan, right, on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So Israel is going to renew the kingdom at this place where there's these 12 stones that tell the story of a God who saves, who always has saved them, not just through the wilderness, but before that through Egypt. And he is telling a story of salvation. And they could be at this place and say, hey, look at these 12 stones. This is what God has done in the past. This king who's worked salvation today, he was used by God. He was empowered by God. Don't put your trust in him. Put your trust in God. Who is the one who saves you? Who stands ready to save? My hope is, is that the people of Jabesh Gilead, as they're sitting there, right, like at this wonderful worship ceremony, celebrating the victory the Lord has done, that they will have moved. They will have moved to like, is there really somebody who can save me from these circumstances? To now saying, no, I, I know there's one in Israel who can save. And it's God. As I was reading this atlas, it kind of says it this way. Uh, So, you know, looking at a map, I was like, where's Gilgal? It says, Gilgal thus became at once a reminder of God's past deliverance from Egypt. So the city, where they're doing this, is reminding them of God, who is a deliverer. And Gilgal also became a token of present victory under Joshua's guidance. So, like, it became the base of operations as they conquered the promised land. And they saw Gilgal as the promise of the inheritance yet to be gained. That it was like the first place that they got, but they knew that they were getting the rest of the land. There's like this past, present, and future hope residing in this place. And you're like, dang, they're doing that ceremony there. I hope the people caught it. My question to you today would be is where have you experienced in real time, in real life, in real history, the Lord's salvation in your life? Think of that place. Take some time this afternoon. Before you get hurried with everything, think of that place. Let it lead you to worship. Let it lead you to reflect upon the Lord who has worked salvation in your life. Let it lead you to give thanks and praise to the God who saves. Those kind of places are powerful. But you might be sitting here saying, I don't have a place like that. That's nice. I don't even know if a place like that exists. Well, for the church throughout history, and it will be until Christ comes again, there is a place that we will always look. That will remind us of God's past salvation. That will remind us of the power of God to currently save in this present moment. And it will remind us of God's future hope to keep his promises and come again and save us. 
And that place is Calvary, where Christ was crucified. And that place is the empty tomb where Christ rose from the grave. And we will forever always look to those places and say, it is there that God works salvation. It is there that God used his power that he always has and always will have to save. And it is there that I will rest my hope of a future with him because he has saved me. And so there is a place that we can look to. And I pray that today you would know who can save. His name is Jesus, and he can save you. Let's pray.